Hello, my name is Norman Graham. I'm a minister in the Baptist Union of Churches in Scotland. The aim of these signposts is to try and connect the text of the Bible with our everyday lives today. Revelation 15 Then I saw in heaven another marvellous event of great significance. Seven angels were holding the seven last plagues which would bring God's wrath to completion. I saw before me what seemed to be a glass sea mixed with fire, and on it stood all the people who had been victorious over the beast and his statue, and the number representing his name. They were all holding harps that God had given them, and they were singing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great and marvellous are, you, are your works, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous deeds have been revealed. The seven bowls of the seven plagues. Then I looked and saw that the temple in heaven, God's tabernacle, was thrown wide open. The seven angels who were holding the seven plagues came out of the temple they were clothed in spotless white linen, with gold sashes across their chests. Then one of the four living beings handed each of the seven angels a gold bowl filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. The temple was filled with smoke from God's glory and power. No one could enter the temple until the seven angels had completed pouring out the seven plagues. Well, the final verse of the previous chapter has been described as the most gruesome verse in the whole book. It didn't bode well for what we would find reading through chapter 15, and the opening verse seems to confirm our fears, for as John looks again, he sees another event or sign of great significance. He sees seven angels uh, holding the seven last plagues, which would bring God's wrath to completion. Reading that text, you immediately expect a description of the, the horrors that those plagues will bring. But we have to wait until the next chapter to find out the content and the consequences of those plagues. Until then, the tone shifts somewhat in verses 2 to 4, and they serve to bring the section that began in chapter 12, verse 1, to a conclusion. And at the same time, they provide a transition into the next section that begins at verse 5 and continues through chapter 16 and beyond. Revelation 15 confronts us with two difficult and uncomfortable issues. Firstly, we are confronted with the reality of the wrath of God, which the angel says will be brought to completion. And as we shall see in the next chapter, uh, his wrath is poured out on the dragon and all the people of the earth. <coughs> Excuse me. 
Uh, secondly, we are confronted by the fact that the righteous appear to be rejoicing uh, that the wrath of God is now enacted or going to be enacted in all its fullness. But whilst in ancient times people had no difficulty believing in and accepting the wrath, the reality of the wrath of God, over the past 300 years or so, people, especially people from Western uh, societies, have increasingly struggled with and ultimately rejected the notion of a God who is wrathful. Christians preach that God is love, and rightly so, for that is what the Bible tells us in 1 John 4 and 16. We know how much God loves us, and we have put our trust in his love. God is love, and all who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. Love, as theologian Stanley Grentz put it, is the foundational attribute of God, the central basic element we can assert about the essence of of God. The problem is that functionally, if not doctrinally, many Christians have taken that truth that God is love and kind of morphed it into a kind of universalism, the idea that everyone will be saved. Uh, they kind of behave as though God will just overlook sin and uh, everyone will get uh, a free pass, be given the rewards of eternal life in the new creation. It's perhaps stating the obvious that if that were true, there would be no need to call people, as Jesus did, to repent. So even in uh, the church, we struggle and are uncomfortable with the very idea of the wrath of God. We don't like to talk about it, but we are uncomfortable for a reason. As Western societies have rejected the notion of a wrathful God, so too, along with that, we have rejected the notion that there is an objective and ultimate standard of truth, of right and wrong, of good and evil that is outside of ourselves, a standard that is beyond what we think. One of the most fundamental beliefs in 21st century Western societies is this idea that uh, moral truth is relative to individual consciousness. That is to say, each of us determines what is true, good, right or evil according to our own conscience and moral values. Hence, if it feels good, do it. Even the laws which supposedly identify good and evil, right and wrong, and determine who should be punished and how they should be punished, are themselves subject to the whims of public opinion, uh, which changes over time. A hundred years ago uh, it was the general opinion of the public that abortion was morally and ethically wrong and so it incurred judicial penalties until public opinion shifted and then it was legalised. The same is true of homosexuality which was only legalised in Scotland in 1980 and many homosexuals who were convicted of the crime prior to that have just had their convictions erased from the record. Human notions, society's notions of right and wrong and the attending judicial punishment that accompanies those notions are always changing. 
it is a frightening prospect, but it's probably true that whatever behaviour we might think is absolutely morally beyond the pale and despicably evil today will most likely be legal a hundred years from now. The point that's often missed in our thinking about the wrath of God is that his wrath is intimately bound up with his justice, which is in turn an expression of his loving character. As Tim Keller has written, in Christianity, God is both a God of love and of justice. The word that is translated as wrath here can be used to describe actions that arise out of strong passions and powerful emotional impulses. You know, we get an outburst of anger uh, and we, we vent our wrath on someone. But as Leon Morris points out, when used in reference to God, it denotes a strong and settled opposition to all that is evil. Tim Keller writes, the Bible says that God's wrath flows from his love and delight in his creation. He is angry at evil and injustice because it is destroying its peace and integrity. God's wrath, therefore, is neither capricious nor arbitrary or subject to change. It is the response of his love against all that is evil and unjust. In biblical terms, his wrath is righteous. That is to say, it is right. It's not unfair or undeserved. It is not swayed by public opinion, our personal ideas of right and wrong. Because God is wholly just, uh, it is his standard of right and wrong that defines right and wrong, not our wavering opinions. Our struggle with the idea of divine wrath stems from the fact that we fail to connect uh, that uh, wrath with his loving justice because we live in a world of competing ideas of what constitutes justice. The creation theologian Miroslav Fulf, reflecting on Micah chapter 4 verses 2 and 4, writes that the Christian idea of justice is grounded in our convictions about God. He says, consider the following three beliefs together. God is all-knowing. God is perfectly just. God is not a tribal deity. All three accepted, it follows that what God holds to be just must be just for every person and every culture, apart from how any person construes justice. If God is the God of all peoples, the justice of God must be the justice for all peoples. Universal peace will be the fruit of universal divine justice. Peace rests on justice and justice is sustained by the God of all nations. In some ways, this answers the second issue that we are confronted with in this passage, the response of the righteous to God's wrath. In verse 2, John sees a glass sea mixed with fire and standing on it are those who have been victorious over the beast and his statue and the number representing his name. All of them are holding up harps that have been given to them by God and they sing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. 
Great and marvellous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous deeds have been revealed. Well, there's a lot of symbolism packed into verse 2, as, as Beale notes, the Sea of Glass is probably a heavenly counterpart to the Red Sea. This becomes clear in verse 3, where the saints are pictured as singing the new song of Moses, which is a, the latter-day counterpart of Moses' song in Exodus 15. In the Bible, the sea is normally a metaphor for cosmic evil. Hence, in Daniel 7, the four evil beasts are seen rising from the sea, as is the first beast in Revelation. And also in Revelation, uh, there is no sea in the new creation because uh, evil has been finally and fully vanquished. Here, John sees the chaotic and evil powers of the sea calmed by the sovereign power of God. Uh, the fact that it's also mixed with fire is probably a reference to the fact that the lamb has judged the beast. For fire is used almost exclusively in Revelation to refer to the judgment of God. And so that the saints are pictured uh, on the sea as having overcome uh, because, as Beale notes, they have refused to compromise their faith in the midst of pressure and persecution like the three faithful youths who refused to worship the king's image in Daniel 3. Victory over the number of his name is included to emphasise they have resisted alliances with the beast, which would cause them to fall short of their redemption. And so, just as Israel praised God by the Red Sea after he delivered them from the Egyptians, so too the church is pictured standing by the sea that has been calmed by the sovereignty of God, uh, praising Christ for his victory over the dragon and his accomplices, demonic and human. The response of the righteous to the wrath of God is in some way an answer to the question posed by the martyrs in Revelation 6 and 10. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge the people who belong to this world and avenge our blood for what they have done to us? Notice that the wicked are judged for their wickedness. They are judged because of their behaviour. They have persecuted the church and killed Christ's disciples. God's justice is not random. It is not spiteful. It is not vengeance for the sake of it. Rather, it is just and right. God judges everyone by the same standard. No one is treated unfairly or unjustly. And it's for this reason that disciples are commanded not to take revenge on those who wrong them, no matter how grievously. Firstly, it's clearly God's place alone to avenge. And secondly, despite how things might look right now, no one gets away with anything. I will not answer for someone else's evil, but I will answer for my own, as will you. God knows every conversation, every text, every WhatsApp, every deed done in darkness. God knows it and we will all answer for it. As the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5 and 10, For we must all stand before Christ to be judged. We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in this earthly body. So this song 
doesn't the righteous are not rejoicing in wrath rather the soul and, and the righteous are rejoicing in the character and loving justice of God which sets right all the wrongs. Firstly the saints acknowledge the greatness of God's works and identify him as the Lord God the Almighty. It's a recognition of God's sovereignty of his right to judge. Furthermore, God is to be praised because his ways are true and righteous. As one commentator puts it, this emphasises that God's sovereign acts are not demonstrations of raw power, but moral expressions of his just character. His redemption through Christ has brought to supreme expression how he demonstrates his justice. Those trusting in Christ have the penalty of their sin paid for by his blood. But those rejecting the divine provision will bear their own penalty for sin. It's no surprise then that the church thinks, Who will not fear you, Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. His holiness is expressed in his judgments against evil, and so his wrath is also an aspect of his holiness as well as of his love and justice. The final line of the song suggests that the fact of God's justice against sin and evil is itself a call to repent and to come and worship him. The fact that this call goes to people of all nations again expresses the universality of God's sovereignty over all nations and his right to judge all people. It's important to remember, as N.T. Wright and, and Michael Bird note, that the judgments described throughout Revelation, and especially in the next chapter, are partly punitive and partly aimed at driving people to repentance. God's grace and mercy are so great that he gives every opportunity for salvation right up to the end. But uncomfortable as it may be to accept, there is an end, at which point salvation is no longer possible and only judgment remains. Non-believers, therefore, cannot afford to be complacent and think, oh, well, I'll repent tomorrow or next week. I'll repent on my deathbed. For no one knows the day or the hour when the end point of no return will be. Life is always much shorter than we expect and can be changed irrevocably and quite literally in a heartbeat. It perhaps needs to be said though that there is also no room for believing or believers complacency. Even if we are willing to accept the reality of divine wrath and justice against sin and evil, we are much less likely to think it might apply to us. As Bruce Goburn put it so well in his song, Justice, everybody loves to see justice done on somebody else. I am firm in my conviction that one of the biggest mistakes that pastors make is to assume that their church members are truly disciples of Jesus Christ just because they prayed a prayer uh, maybe um, some years ago uh, they've been baptised and they've attended uh, church services for the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Church attendance and good clean living uh, and saying a prayer are not adequate markers of true discipleship. 
the key marker of true discipleship is the extent to which our lives reflect the life and character of Christ. The letter of St Paul to the Romans was written to a church. It was written to believers. And in chapter 2, having already written about the tendency to self-righteously point the finger at other people's wrongdoings and other people's sinful behaviour, he said this. You may think you can condemn such people, but you are just as bad as you have and you have no excuse. When you say they are wicked and should be punished, you are condemning yourself. For you who judge others do these very same things. And we know that God, in his justice, will punish anyone who does such things. Since you judge others for doing these things, why do you think you can avoid God's judgment when you do the same things? Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? But because you are stubborn and you refuse to turn from your sin, you are storing up terrible punishment for yourself. For a day of anger is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will judge everyone according to what they have done. My personal experience of church is that Calvin was right to say that the human heart is an idol factory for our churches are full of idolatry, and whether you believe in it or not, the wrath of God is coming against all idolaters and evildoers, those outside the church and those inside it. Just reread the messages to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3. In 1624, John Donne published a, a series of meditations from which we get the very well-known phrase, never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. <laughs>